Good morning, everybody. My name is Ronnie. If uh, you haven't met me before, I get to direct the Salt Company College Ministry of our church and one of the pastors here. So excited to get to open up the Bible with you guys. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14, if you guys want to turn there. And while you're turning there, I, not everybody might agree with this, but I think it's kind of fun on like the Sunday morning of the blizzard to just look around at who's out, who else is out there driving. On any typical Sunday morning, you know it's mostly just like the Christians, right, in any given city that are out there going to church, but then even especially today. And so thanks for being here. It, it's just a, it is a cool picture, though, of just like what it means for all of us to be together, what it means for all of us to be here worshiping God. And so I, for one, am excited to get to open up the Bible and worship him together with you. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, if you uh, are just joining us new today. And really like the main theme of this book that we've been unpacking is that Jesus Christ came as God, become a man to announce good news for all people. And specifically, one of the things we've been seeing in this recent section is that this good news for all people, it comes at great cost to both Jesus and his followers that we're going to go and proclaim it. So it's, it's good news, not, I was thinking about this, like not like good vibes for all people. Maybe that might be more the mission of like the Hallmark movies that we see at Christmas time, where it's like nothing against them, but just absolutely no power to change your life, right? Makes you feel good makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Jesus wasn't just this like nice guy walking around offering helpful tips, but he came in a dramatic and powerful way to bring good news, an announcement, something decisive in history for all people with incredible power to change our lives at great cost to himself. And so last week in Luke 13, we saw that, that Jesus calls following him the narrow way, that he is in fact the only way to God. And this way to God that he was announcing is not just like an improvement to our life, but actually a better and different life that's only possible through following him. And uh, Rob, Pastor Rob, has been talking about how we're kind of like on the road with Jesus and just walking along with him, learning from him what the kingdom of God, what the reign and rule of God is like. And one of the interesting things that Jesus continually does on this road is, remember, just so we don't forget this, he is a real historical person a rabbi walking with followers down this road in the ancient Middle Eastern context. And he's using just like, he's kind of walking around pointing at just real objects, real events, and saying like, let me tell you about what God is like. Let me tell you about what humanity is like. Let me tell you about what the kingdom of God is like by pointing to these things. And today, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gets invited to a dinner party. Okay, a, a wedding fe or a, a feast, and he's going to talk about a wedding feast. So this whole theme of, of being at a dinner at some Pharisee's house, and he's going to use that very dinner to talk about some really profound realities of what it means to, to uh, long for the kingdom of God and who exactly it is that gets in. But one of the things Jesus is going to do is he's going to make it awkward. So he's going to talk about religion at the dinner table, ironically, with the religious leaders of the day. But get this, the religion that he talks about is going to make even these religious leaders feel uncomfortable. And as I was reading that, I was just thinking about, um, man, one of the times at weddings that make my wife and I cringe the most is right before, not the maid of honor, but whenever the best man has to get up to give a speech. Have any of you guys seen some just uncomfortable, painful best man speeches? So here's, here's just two. This, this may make me go over my time limit, but here I am. One, okay, uh, one that I was at and one that I heard through a friend. First one I was at, my, my friend's wedding, and his best man got up to speak, and it was kind of like the friend group that you did, like friends from high school, you didn't really know, all these different things. The, the best friend gets up, and he opens up his speech, and he goes, fornication. Oh, oh, I mean, for an occasion uh, such as this. <laughs> Guys, 
Do not. If, you, if you're a best man in somebody's wedding right now, it is not funny to, to do an awkward, weird sex joke at the beginning of the, the best man speech. Fornication, I mean, hopefully you're not offended. I said fornication. Paul talks about like we should be against fornication. So, but that's how he opens up his best man speech and it just makes all of us who are trying to eat our dinner feel incredibly uncomfortable. Um, another one. So this one, man, if, if I was there, I could probably tell this better. But my, I heard from a friend in college, he was at a wedding. And so I know the people at this wedding and man, maybe you've been there, but the bride and groom are three hours late to the reception. I don't know what happened in between like the ceremony and the pictures and all this stuff, but three hours late. And then apparently, so this in, it's in July in Ohio, the, the wedding, um, like the whatever, the, what do you call that place? The event center had no, had no air conditioning or the air conditioning broke. So it's like incredibly hot. People are waiting for three hours. They're starving and hungry. The, the bride and groom finally get there and they're sitting down and it's like everyone is just losing it. But the best man gets up to give the, the speech, and it's so hot there in Ohio. Everybody is sweating. Nobody wants to listen to this anyways, but he, this guy's like, he might be like the president someday. He's, he's like a great leader, great speaker, very compelling guy, and he's just determined to just push through this and deliver a great speech anyways. And as he's giving the speech, my buddy's telling me, literally a, uh, a little uh, lantern tips over on one of the tables, and an entire table catches on fire. <laughs> And while he's giving a speech, so just imagine my friend, the, one of the groomsmen, is just watching it all happen, and he's wondering what John, the speaker, is going to do, and John just decides to power through it and just act like this table <laughs> is not on fire. And so just imagine the, the awkwardness, the uncomfortableness of the just sweating and all these things, but maybe you guys have some funny stories, too, of just like the, the dinner party that went awkward, that went terrible. That's, it's a little bit about what is going to happen today in Luke chapter 14. But here's the key difference. It's not that Jesus himself is awkward. It's not that, that Jesus does something ridiculous. It's what he does and the things he's going to say are going to expose the sinfulness of these Pharisees' hearts and ours as well. And it's going to make them feel incredibly awkward and uncomfortable, as we'll see. And it might do a little bit of the same for us. And I would submit to you guys, uh, one thought I had this week is, for spiritual growth to happen in our lives, maybe one of the things we do need is more awkward conversations like this, more truths that make us uncomfortable, more things that we just have to be courageous enough to say to one another and, and pray to God. And so I hope that that would happen for us today. Okay? So let's read Luke chapter 14. We're going to read it one time through just to kind of get the feel for the story, noticing the awkwardness, and then we'll, we'll jump in and I'll tell you which direction we're going to head. So here we go. Verse 1. One Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So the Pharisees had invited him to a dinner, and they had done it as a trap. So they're, they're watching Jesus carefully. This is like a Sunday night dinner, Sunday after church dinner. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man there who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Okay, so really quick, there's a, there, he's at dinner with the Pharisees. There's a man with dropsy there. That would have been a, a disease where he has an edema. He has swelling and fluid in his body, which meant a, a painful life of suffering and a, and a short uh, lifespan and quick death. And so like so many people Jesus encountered, this man is not only physically um, debilitated, but he, he would be a social outcast for this. So he really had no place being at this party. And as Jesus puts his finger on that issue, on the fact that 
this man wasn't invited, notice the awkwardness, the awkward silence, the uncomfortableness, the Pharisees, they can't answer any of his questions. Okay, it gets worse. Keep going. Verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So he sees the way that they're sitting down at this table, and then he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So notice, no words from the Pharisees here. Now they're probably just kind of looking around at the seats that they've chosen. They're like, Jesus is, is confronting them and their choice of seats, and they're just kind of sitting there. And again, he was their guest. He goes on. Verse 12. Now he turns to the, the man who called the feast. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So now the tension's off like the guests a little bit, but he looks to the one who called the party and he confronts him with something and notice no response back. So just guys, realize, completely silent. This, this dinner party probably went from incredibly joyful, tons of noise, to all of a sudden Jesus speaks up and it's getting awkward, it's getting uncomfortable, he's confronting them in their hearts. Let's finish it out in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, almost as if to break the awkward silence, he says to him, uh, uh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, though, right? Right? So th this is probably like a, a phrase that would have been very common to use at the time. And so he just is kind of like, I can't take this tension anymore. Somebody's got to say something. Hey, Jesus, like, but we're in, right? Like, it's going to be great when we eat bread in the kingdom of God. Right, Rabbi? But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. And invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, and you just kind of maybe imagine Jesus looking them all in the eye at this point. For I tell you, None of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So just dead silence now at this point. What is Jesus doing? What is, what is the uncomfortable tension that's been introduced here? Well, we know now from the, from the end with that story that he just told that, that Jesus is, he's both talking about this real dinner party and how they should behave, but he's actually pointing to a much bigger, much deeper reality of what the, the kingdom of God itself is going to be like. Okay, what the kingdom is going to be like, but then also 
who's going to be in it. So first, quickly, let's just look at some of the things he says about what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He says it's going to be like a wedding feast. Okay, this, this dinner party that he's at right now, he treats it like a living story, a living parable to say the kingdom of heaven is going to be kicked off with a wedding feast like this. And what is a wedding feast? Two things. One, it's a, it's a marker of status, right? We know this. We know that if you're the person doing the invites, you're trying to figure out what is this person's status in relation to me? Are they, are they worthy? Is it worth the invite to them? We know the stress that comes with all the guest lists. And then if you're the person that gets the invite... You're kind of wondering, is the status of this person somebody that would make me want to go to the wedding? Or if you get the invite, you might also be wondering, I, I am worthy. I am of the right status to go. And so wedding parties are about status, but they're also about this amazing celebration of joy. Status and joy. So think about the food, the, t- the taste of it. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. The dancing, the conversation, even just like the that kind of intangible culmination of this couple's whole relationship coming together and celebrating the moment. And you can just, there's something different in the air, just intense, amazing joy in, in the dancing. The dancing is incredible, especially you should have seen me at, at my wedding. My biggest flaw at this point is as I've started to pick up on some of the different dance moves, I seem to always be turned in the opposite direction of everyone else. But I have a group of friends around me that have been helping me get better each and, and every time. But there's a lot of joy there for me. A lot of joy, and a lot of joy for the people that are, that are looking at me. <laughs> Status, right, and joy is what a wedding party is, is all about. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this. It's about status. It's about a celebration of joy. And so we see the Bible talking about how the kingdom is like already here, like Jesus has already come, the church is already meeting, his rule and reign is already established, it's already here, but then there's also a sense of that it's, it's not yet it's not yet consummated, so we're almost like this engaged couple that is getting ready to get married. That's actually a good picture of what, what God says is like the state of us as Christians right now. Jesus is in a way proposed to us at the cross. He's made it possible for us to come into relationship with him, but we still live in this broken and fallen world, and we're journeying towards the wedding one day. We're like this engaged couple. Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, today the kingdom has come. Revelation 19, we see the actual marriage ceremony happen at the end of the Bible. And Jesus is saying, that's what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Here's just a couple of realities that we see in the passage, just real quickly, about what, what are going to be the amazing things about this kingdom, about, about heaven. First, healing. We see the man with dropsy. Jesus, he heals them. They ask, is it law? He asks, is lost will he heal on, on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a, a day that marked wholeness and peace. The Sabbath was a Jewish day that marked the, the reality that one day God was going to make all things new and heal all people. So it, so it was really a stupid question because Jesus is saying, hey, on the day of wholeness and peace, is it lawful for me to bring wholeness and peace to somebody? Uh, yeah. And so Jesus heals him as a mark and a sign of what the kingdom is going to be like, incredible healing. It's also going to be a place of honor. We saw that in verse 11 when he's talking about where to sit at the table. He says the humble are going to be exalted all people that come to Jesus in faith are going to be exalted to a place of honor, social outcast, spiritual outcast, from shame to glory. It's going to be a place of, of joy as well in two key ways. One, the joy of a reward. If you guys look at, look at verse 14 with me, he says you're going to be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the just, resurrection, new life, the just, things made right, all things made new, 
all things made right. That's what's going to happen with the kingdom coming. There's going to be this incredible reward. Even the suffering of, of this world is working together an eternal weight of glory, an eternal reward for the people of God on that day. And then last, pleasure. Pleasure. This is one that can be hard for us to think about when we think about heaven, when we think about the kingdom of God, is that it's going to be pleasurable. There, it, he says, you're going to taste my banquet in verse 24. The kingdom's going to have a, a taste to it. I've heard people talk about how God, anything you enjoy in this life, any pleasure that you feel and, and can, can taste in this life is downstream from the fountain, which is God himself. And when we get to heaven, when we're in that kingdom, we're going to be this place of, of ultimate pleasure. Ultimate pleasure. Back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are you if you're hungry now, for you shall be satisfied in the kingdom. Healing, honor, reward, and pleasure. This is, this is what God's prepared for his people. This is what we're on our way towards in this, this glorious celebration. The kingdom's going to be like a wedding banquet. And then get this, is the wedding reception the, the uh, end or the start of, of the marriage for people in life? The start. As incredible as it's going to be. As incredible a celebration of honor and healing and status and joy and pleasure that the banquet is going to be. It's just the start of the marriage between God and his people. And Jesus is sitting here at a dinner table saying, that's what the kingdom of God is going to be like. I wonder if you know that. Let's just pause for a second before we go to part two. Do you know that? Do you know that? I think, I think one of the, the biggest problems that we all have, whether you're not a Christian here or even if you're a Christian, just because of the world and the air we've breathed, is that we, just kind of, we almost picture that we live just in this dome and that this is all that there is. This life is all that we have. There is nothing coming after this life. The pleasures of this life are all we're going to have, so we better get them. But Jesus, is, he's almost like poking a hole through that dome and crying it open, saying, no, like the best wedding you've ever been to in this life, the best reception, the best, that intangible joy that you can feel in the air when you see the culmination of those two people coming together, that is a picture of what you're heading towards if you're a Christian, if God has redeemed you. That's what the kingdom will be like. That's not very awkward, right? That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. The thing that gets awkward is talking about who's going to be there. Who's going to be there? That's the thing that, that Jesus stopped them in their tracks with as he was talking to them. When he starts talking about who is going to be in the kingdom, and I'll sum it up like this, all are invited, but only some will accept. The gospel of Jesus, it's good news for all people, but what Jesus says here is that only the humble and only the hungry will actually accept that offer. The humble, not the proud. The hungry, not the satisfied. Let's look at the first one. Who will be there first? The humble. We see this in, in verses 1 through 11, and we see that this big obstacle in the way of us in the kingdom of God is our pride and our temporary status. Pride in, in the things that we've gained on the earth to give us status. So this is the Pharisees to a T. They were the religious leaders of the day. They had a ton of power and status, and they were very, very proud of it. And we need to push that on ourselves and ask, are we proud of our temporary status? These are things that we've earned through our own hard work, or that many of us have actually received a leg up on the rest of humanity just by being born in, in the 21st century in Western, modern America. But we're proud of that status. Look at verses seven through eight with me. It says, he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, 
do not sit down in a place of honor. He noticed. He saw the way that they were choosing their seats was revealing something about their hearts, that they were proud of their status. So this is the seat that I belong in. I, belong, I have this seat at the table. Okay, I've got like a bunch of sports illustrations and stuff. I'm working on that. I'm going to maybe try to pick up some other hobbies so I can have like something else in my head. But have any of you guys seen the movie The Program before? Anybody? The Program. I'll, I'll, paint, I'll paint a picture. Okay, one guy. Okay, we watched this movie. <laughs> Seriously, on repeat before high school football games, it was like the classic, like, let's watch a crazy football movie so we can get pumped up and go out there on the field. And it was called The Program, and there's this guy in it named Latimer, and he's got, like, long hair. He's roided up. He, he's, like, the classic, like, meathead football guy. And there's this scene. You can go on YouTube, watch this after me. He, he uh, is actually not, like, a very good football player, but because of the steroids, he becomes very strong and he sees like the sheet on the door of his coach's office with who's going to start in the game, and he is on the starting defense. He's earned the status of starting. And so he goes up to it, and he's like, yes, starting defense, a place at the table. And then he runs out into the parking lot and starts bashing his head through windows, okay? Because he's just, he's just, he's so excited, but also the steroids are probably affecting him a little bit. And so there's a scene where the, the coaches pull aside, and they're like, we, we better make sure we don't drug test Latimer until, until after this game. Okay, so crazy excited that he, he's got a seat at the table, starting defense. And he, this is, it's ridiculous, right? But man, some version of that is like totally inside of me, right? A seat at the table. I just want to be included. I just want to have that status. Is he inside of you too at all? Maybe you're not smashing your head through a window, but maybe you do other weird, ridiculous stuff. I mean, some of the things that we do like with our social media accounts, to project a status to the world. Sometimes normal, sometimes a little bit over the top, right? Some of the unethical things we might do, you know, for example, in, in the workplace, to get a seat at the table. Crazy, it's, it's smashing our head through a window. What are some places of honor that you might be, be striving for? What seat at the table is most important for you in your life right now? Notice... Jesus doesn't say, don't desire a seat at the table. Did you notice that? Look back at, at verses 7 through 8 and then at 11. He just says, you don't take the seat. You choose the humble seat and let somebody else exalt you to that seat. But this, this pride is an obstacle in our way. And so what does Jesus do? What's his kind of recipe for dealing with pride? It's, it's humility, but specifically two things about humility. The first one is sometimes we're humbled through suffering. Sometimes suffering and trials come and we're humbled. So we see this with the man with dropsy in verses 1 through 7. He's not striving for anything. He knows he doesn't belong at this party, but because of the fact that he's just humbly there in need, Jesus heals him. The most glorious status reversal in this whole story is this man who wasn't claiming a seat at the table, but he was just there in need of Jesus. So, so suffering humbles us, and I'm learning this so much from, from some of you in our church right now. I am becoming more humble, even though I'm not going through great suffering right now in this moment, by seeing the, the suffering that we share in the church, and it's, it's giving me perspective, and it's humbling me. But maybe you're like me right now, and you're not going through a season of great suffering. Jesus says we still need to, to choose humility. So if suffering's not humble you, we, we need to humble ourselves. We need to learn to take the lower place, take the humble seat I wonder what that might look like for you at your workplace. Like, what does it look like? Jesus isn't against um, getting positions of leadership and authority. 
He's just against asserting ourselves to the point where we're acting like a ridiculous person smashing our head through the windows. He's saying, seek the lower seat. Let other people exalt you. Uh, a pastor that I really like named Ray Ortland, he talks about leadership and humility. And he says, hey, leadership is the death of swagger. The death of swagger. Leadership and, and authority, it's not like humility isn't anti-status. It's just anti-flaunting your status, anti-cutting corners just to get status. And notice this, Jesus talks about, you know, someone more distinguished than you might come along and, and take your seat. And that would be really embarrassing if it happened. And, and we know now, right, that Jesus obviously is the most distinguished person at this, this dinner table. And so he's just kind of sitting there throwing out these little ideas to people. The humble. The humble will be the ones in the kingdom. Why? Is it because in our humility, God sees that and it, and it like merits something with him? Like, because you're humble, you've earned your way into the kingdom? No. To be humble is to, to know our sin, to know our neediness, and then we hear the, the invitation to the kingdom and we actually accept it. Put it like this, to be humble and not proud is to realize that, that we got to get invited to God's party rather than us inviting him to ours. And so pride is, is, is inviting Jesus to follow you in, in your life versus you realizing you need him to invite you to follow him. So the humble, they're the ones in the kingdom because they're the ones who stopped inviting God to their parties. Jesus sees them and he says, friend, move up. Move up here with me. The humble. But not just the humble, the, the hungry. This is verses 12 through 24. And this brings up the second obstacle. So if, if the hungry will be in the kingdom, then it's, it's the people, it's those of us that are satisfied with temporary joys that will not be. If we're satisfied with, with temporary joys, we see in verses 12 through 14, we can be satisfied with enjoying the reward of, of temporary social honor and praise from people, but not the eternal honor of God. This is the example of the, the who do you invite to your, to your dinner, to your banquet. You're going to invite people that are just like you, that can reward you if you're enjoying the reward of temporary social honor and temporary praise from people. The second one is 18 through 20. We see that we could also be satisfied with enjoying God's gifts, but not God himself. Enjoying God's gifts, but not God himself. So let's look at the first one for a second. Instead of being satisfied with temporary honor, we need to hunger for this eternal reward. He says it in verse 14. He says this, you'll be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. And here's, here's just a truth we need to understand. Our earthly actions... The things that we do in this life can earn eternal rewards. In the same way that the things that you do in this life earn uh, rewards in this life, you know, you invest money and you can make a profit. There's a way to invest the way that you're living your life right now that will actually earn a reward in eternity. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about building with the right materials for the, the right reward. Jesus in Matthew 5 says we need to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. So this is just, this is something that happens. It's like a principle of economics in the way that God designed things. What is the eternal reward? Ultimately, it's, it's God's praise. Okay. It's God's praise. Let me just, let me give you one verse that kind of explains it. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of some, uh, it's called the parable of the talents where he gives people different resources to use in this life. And based on the way that they invested them, keyword, the way 
that they invested them, he comes to them at the end of it and says whether or not they did a good job. And this is the verse he says. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Listen to the reward there. First, it's the well done. That, there is no higher reward than God telling you, well done. You did a great job with what I gave you. But then also, he says, I'm gonna, I set you over a little in this temporary earthly life. I'm going to set you over much in eternity. Enter into the joy of your master. So it's something about this, this well done, but then flowing out of that ultimate reward, there's going to be some level of increased responsibility and increased joy with God, which is here a way better reward than the temporary things that we seek after. Here's where it got really awkward for, for them. Look back with me at, at verse um, 12. So he said to the man, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What is Jesus's prescription for fighting against this seeking after temporary rewards, it's generosity and hospitality. Generosity and hospitality, which by definition, both of those two things, it's not just about having people over for dinner and it's not even just about leveraging our money. It's about giving money to people that won't be able to pay us back for that investment. And it's also about opening up our lives, opening up our homes, opening up our tables to people that won't be able to repay us with an increase in status or even by inviting us over for a great meal. This is what Jesus says that we should do if we want to start seeking an eternal reward. This is what pleases God. This is what he sees. This is what may not repay us in this life, but this is what he says we need to go after. So the awkward silence shifts to us as we look around our lives, this room, and our, our connection groups that meet during the week and just ask, where are the the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, which are both real categories of people, but also just representative of people that aren't like you, people that are socially outcast, anybody that won't be able to repay you. Jesus says generosity and hospitality towards those people is both winning my approval and also, it's going to break the power of greed and stinginess in your life and help you to crave that eternal reward. So much more to be said about that one. We can't take 20 more minutes. I think you guys have great ideas about how to do that. I think you do. I think you have great ideas about how we can be a more generous and hospitable people. I think that God gave us a layup, sorry, sports reference, an easy, easy shot in terms of saying, hey, Doxa, let's organize your whole church around spreading out over the city and having meals together once a week. Maybe the hardest part, though, will be figuring out how do we become friends with people that aren't like us? How do we meet people that are of no social advantage to us? I'm going to kick that one to you guys in connection groups to talk about. The next one. So we can be caught up with hunger for temporary rewards or also hunger for temporary pleasure. And this one can be quick, but verses 15 through 24, he tells the story. And we have these people that because of their oxen, their wives, and their land, they don't want to receive the invite to this amazing banquet that God is throwing. They don't want to receive the invite. So this just brings me to mind when Jesus says that we don't live by bread alone, he's saying 
we don't live by just the gifts that God gives, but by the giver himself, by God himself. And in this story, Jesus is illustrating that one of the, the common temptations to humanity is to be so enamored with, so satisfied with the things of this world, which are good gifts from God, but at the expense of, of wanting God himself. So when we get that invitation, again, it's not that God says the hungry, they've got something that, that earns favor with me. He just says, you're all invited, and then only the hungry say, that sounds great. That sounds great, God. I would love to be at your banquet. If we're too satisfied with earthly things, we get caught up in chasing them. Psalm 16 captures just this language of being satisfied in God. It says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices you make me known to the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is language of somebody that has found satisfaction in God, found a way to enjoy God's gifts as a way of enjoying God more himself. I was reading a book this week. Um, a pastor named John Piper, he puts it like this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the x-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, and when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. The most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. So the question for us is, are we, are we entangled with the earthly gifts, fields, oxen, wives, businesses, possessions, relationships? And how can we lose our taste for those things so that we actually want to be with God at this great banquet? That's another one I'd love to talk about more. I think you guys might have better ideas than me, and we're going to talk about that in, in groups. How do, you, how do you hunger for God? How do you cultivate a hunger for God and decrease your appetite for just the things of this world? So let's sum it all up, okay? If there was a big idea here, it's that the kingdom of God, it's going to be like this marriage between God and humanity, and it's going to be kicked off by a giant wedding feast. That is what is coming for the people of God. Jesus, he's died and rose again to make us all worthy of being there. He said, friend, move up higher. But those that are proud of their earthly status and satisfied by earthly joys will not take his invite. It's not that they won't be invited. They will hear the invite of the gospel and they won't want to come. So to put it in the context of Luke, we've been saying the gospel is good news for all people. I would just now add, but the humble and the hungry will be the only ones that want it. Only the humble and the hungry will want to take this invitation from God. Jesus said that God wants his house filled. It is not on God to limit the people that will be in the kingdom. It is on us to in our pride love our earthly status more or in our satisfaction be satisfied with the things of this world. And so for me, probably the most uh, convicting thing for me about studying this passage this week were just the sheer lack of examples I could think of. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're, try you're like, okay, so where am I doing this? Or like, how am I specifically in those areas of, of generosity and hospitality? 
I mean, my wife and I were just talking the other day. I was like, what, is it? What, what will this mean? What does this mean? I mean, probably for us, it's at that point of how do I start to, to get to know people that are of no you know, advantage to me by the standards of this world and start to live generously and hospitable with them? That's where, where we're starting. But the biggest thing that I felt is just I need, I need help from, from Jesus here. I need him. I, I, I don't know. I think I kind of understand what he's saying, but I need to, him to help show me the way forward. And, and one of the things I noticed about this dinner party is it's almost like the Pharisees are just, they're just under a spell. They're just sitting there and constantly throughout the gospels, they just don't understand what he's saying. And it's because they can't see. They can't see. And I wonder if any of you are in this spot. This is what sin does. Sin, it, it, it has taken captive our human heart. It's made it proud. It's made us short-sighted. It's made us greedy. The American dream, the context that we live in has amplified this so much. Jesus talks all the time how not, it's not a, that a rich person can't get into the kingdom, but just that it's, it's hard. It's harder for a rich person to get into the kingdom. And this should make us shudder when we realize that we are a part of a society and a time in history where we, you know, these two major obstacles, pride in our earthly status, satisfaction in earthly joys, we're among the most powerful and affluent people that have ever lived, that have ever lived. And so that, that uncomfortableness that was sitting on the Pharisees should travel over to us, but I don't want to leave you without hope because Jesus, he really does desire to make us uncomfortable so he can heal us. He desires to make us uncomfortable for the good of the world, that we'd be generous and hospitable, but also for the, the salvation of our souls and for a life in the kingdom with him. And so let's just end with pointing out how it is that Jesus breaks the spell. Just a couple things to close. This is what Jesus does to break the spell. This is a little bit of a review. The first thing to break the spell is, is just to do what Jesus told us to do, which is Man, the power, I think, of practicing generosity and hospitality to break greed. The power of choosing the lower seat, choosing humility. These are things that are going to humble us, but also cultivate a hunger for God. And so simply doing what Jesus tells us to do is going to help us here. It's going to make us humble. It's going to make us hungry. If you're not a Christian in here, it's going to make you see the banquet table of God and actually want it. If you are a Christian in here, it's going to help you live more in light of that, which would be generosity, hospitality, humility. So do what Jesus tells us to do. Here's the last one. We need to see what Jesus sees. We need to see what he sees. One of, the, one of my favorite verses of this is at the end when he says, he's telling the story and he says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And he's telling a story, but I just imagine that he looks them in the eye at this point, and specifically when he says, my banquet, he's no longer talking about the, he's no longer narrating, but he's talking about, hey, we're at a dinner party right now. I am throwing an amazing party at the end of history. My banquet. Do we see that banquet? Do we see what Jesus sees? I want to help you see as we close. Isaiah chapter 25. Okay, you can turn there. You can just listen to me. Isaiah chapter 25 is one of the, the great places in the Bible that gives us a picture of this banquet. Gives us a picture of it. And so just with, with the eyes of your heart, I just want you to listen to these words about this is real. This is what it's going to be like. This is what we're longing for. We should humbly and hungrily long for this day. You're going to see the utter destruction of the proud and the satisfied and then the utter joy of the humble and the hungry. Here we go. Oh, Lord. 
You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. This is a picture of of a city built on human pride and accomplishments coming tumbling down at the end of history. Everything that's being built around us apart from God, apart from dependence on God, apart from an aim towards glorifying God, God will bring crumbling down. He will bring human pride crumbling down at the end of history. And then look at the humble being raised up. Verse 4, For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall. It can be so hard to live in a world filled with proud people like us. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. The song of the ruthless is put down. Man, for people that are, that are suffering from oppression that I've never experienced in this life, to know that that song, the song of the ruthless, is going to be put down by God, that justice will come one day. This is the end of history. God is bringing pride down, and he's going to exalt the humble, exalt people that long for his coming, and then listen to the banquet, and this will be it. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Listen, he will swallow up death forever. The capstone of what God is doing is he's going to swallow up death forever. We've got wine and we've got meat and all these amazing pleasures and joys, but the status of death being no more, that is the end for which God is moving. In verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Doxa, this is what's coming for the humble and the hungry. Let's pray.